My name is Omer, and you're tuning in to Oats for Breakfast, which is an eco-socialist podcast, usually based in Toronto. That's right, we're usually based in Toronto, but that's not where I am right now. I'm currently in Lahore, Pakistan, which is an interesting place to be while riding out the COVID-19 crisis. When I talk to friends back in Canada, they don't overtly freak out about where I am, but you know, you can sort of hear a wariness in their voice because they're maybe thinking, Omer, what the hell are you doing staying in a third world country during a pandemic? That is a good question. And a reasonably good answer to the question does exist, but right now is not the time to get into the details of it or to talk about what conditions are like here. We'll save that for another episode. This episode is about rent strike organizing in Canada. The ongoing crisis is really interesting from the standpoint of our subjective experience of it. Because on the one hand, there's a global pandemic underway, which means that the crisis is affecting more or less everyone everywhere. Yet on the other hand, the concrete experience that we each have of the crisis is largely locally determined. It's based on the way in which the crisis is playing out and being managed in the specific place that we happen to be. I've obviously been curious about what things are like in Canada, and I've been trying to follow the news and been talking to friends, but it's been a bit tough to grasp what things are like there because my own surroundings are so different from Toronto and Montreal and so on. So I thought it might help me to get my head into what things are like back home if I was to talk to someone about rent strike organizing, which is now one of the major organizing initiatives that's taking place in Canada. I chatted about it with Drew Ojajay and Sam Hirsch, They're both members of an organization called Courage, so I also asked them to talk a bit about what the organization is and what it's been involved in in the past. We chatted about cancelrent.ca, which is a Courage-affiliated website that you'll likely find useful if you're in Canada and you're interested in getting involved in rent strike organizing. Though I began the interview by asking Drew and Sam about what conditions are like where they are in Montreal and Ottawa. If you haven't subscribed to Oats for Breakfast, remember that you can do so on iTunes, Spotify, or any other podcast app of your choice. If you subscribe to the podcast, you'll be alerted whenever we release new content. In the coming weeks, we're planning to host a number of what I think will be fairly interesting discussions about the COVID-19 crisis. We're going to have discussions about the impacts of the virus in the global south, the political economy of the crisis, COVID-19 and the ecological limits of capital, and a few other topics as well. All of our content is freely available for everyone to listen to, but there are of course costs involved in researching and producing this show. Oats for Breakfast has a Patreon, and we're eternally grateful to those of our listeners who are supporting us through that. If you're able and would like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash Oats for Breakfast and becoming a patron. And with that, let's get to the interview. 
Uh, okay, so let me, first of all, introduce you to our audience. Drew Ojajay is a writer and organizer based in Montreal. He is the co-founder of Courage. He has also co-founded Friends of Public Service as well as the Media Co-op. And Drew failed to include this in the bio he sent me, but he is the co-author along with Nicholas Perry Shaw of a very good book called Paved with Good Intentions, Canada's Development NGOs from Idealism to Imperialism. And I'm also talking with Sam Hirsch, who is an activist and organizer with the rent strike movement in Ottawa. He is also a member of Courage and has also been involved in Palestine solidarity organizing with independent Jewish voices. Welcome to the podcast, Drew and Sam. Thanks. Happy to be here. Same here. Thank you for having me on the show. All right. So, um, I, I guess as I kind of communicated to you guys online, I haven't been in Canada for most of the duration of this crisis. I, I mean, I flew out before the travel advisories and the travel bans, I guess that's what we have now. Where where are you? I'm actually in Pakistan. I'm visiting my parents. Oh, okay. Yeah, I got here at the end of February. Um, and since I'm at the ISIS training camp here, that's why my beard is so long. Drew's beard is longer than mine, I though. See. Fit in, I see. He'd fit in better than I would. Yeah, I'm trying to grow a beard. It's not uh, not working out as well, though. Yeah, yeah. no, you, you wouldn't survive, <laughs> Sam. So. No, I'm, no. I'm just kidding. I'm not an ice, at an ISIS training camp. Well, really? You're not? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Does, uh, does ISIS have a, uh, have a base here in South Asia? I, I don't really know. Hopefully the uh, NSA isn't listening in to this. <laughs> I think the NSA approves of all the, the Saudi-funded uh, fundamentalists who are organizing it in Pakistan and other other in that region, so uh, you're probably off the Fair enough. Anyway, um, so when I was trying to follow what was happening in Canada, one of the things that came up on my uh, social media feed was this stuff about the organizing around a rent strike in, in various cities across the country. And so I thought it'd be interesting to talk to you guys. And it would be a way for me to learn more generally about what's happening in Canada with respect to this crisis. And then, and then our audience, I think, would also find the topic of the rent strike interesting. But okay, to begin with, what are conditions like? So Sam, you're in Ottawa and Drew, you're in Montreal. Uh, what's it like? What's going on? Um, yeah, I mean, things are... <clears throat> Things are interesting here. You know, I go out on like, uh, I'll you try to go out as, as least as we possibly can because uh, of the crisis. And it's weird to go outside. I think, I think everyone's nervous to go outside. I've been going for runs too, and, and there's not many people around. Um, the days are getting nicer though. So I think government officials are worried that more people will go outside. Like the other day, we actually received an Amber Alert, which is, you know, uh, every time there's there, there's a missing person or something, uh, there people will get this alert on their phones in Ontario. And when it was really nice outside the other day, I think it was uh, Sunday or Saturday last week, uh, there was an Amber Alert sent out to people's phones uh, because the government didn't want people to go outside and they didn't want people to to be around each other. But so so there's that general fear dynamic, I think. And also um, another thing that was that's been in the news lately. Uh, in Ottawa, uh, you know, the, the Canadian Civil Liberties Association actually wrote a letter to the mayor of Ottawa 
who's hasn't been dealing with this crisis very well, who, you know, has basically tasked by law officers um, with sort of uh, cracking down on anyone who's not two meters apart, who's not social distancing. And it's created this sort of power over them that, you know, they've issued like a $700 ticket to a man who was playing alone with his child in a field, uh, his autistic child in a field. So, I mean, I think the laws around this at the municipal level, at the federal and provincial level that uh, lawmakers have put forward have been very vague and no one really knows what's going on, I think, to a large extent. And, uh, you know, that's especially concerning when, when you put vague interpretations of the law in the hands of law enforcement. You know, and I think a similar thing going on in Montreal, too, where they're sort of I, I won't go as far as saying it's a police state or whatnot. But I think that there is a there is a large overreach. You know, social distancing is important and, and uh, to, to, you know, flatten the curve, as they say. But I think there is definitely an overreach by by law enforcement. And the mayor of Ottawa here is not doing a good job of mitigating that. So, yeah, it's, it's been uh, it's been sort of an interesting and scary-ish uh, time to uh, to be here and also creates a really difficult obviously as we'll get into it a difficult um, scenario around around organizing um, to not be able to talk to people in person and go outside yeah i mean similar to sam um here in montreal um i'm, I'm on the plateau which is apparently montreal is kind of the hot spot of canada as far as i can tell and which is sort of attributed to so many people being away for March break overseas and getting it there and then coming back and then uh, immediately supposedly going into lockdown. But, but there's been of, of, there's a large number of cases and, and of Montreal, the plateau where I live is one of the hotspots. Um, that said, on a completely subjective perspective, I, I don't, I haven't really experienced anything except that everybody goes outside when it's nice out because nobody, you know, nobody has any schedule constraints. So it's actually like more traffic in the streets. It seems like at certain moments, um, which is obviously a little nerve wracking uh, if you're out there because people are jogging, people are not keeping their distance and it's, uh, it's, yeah, it can be a little stressful. So we generally, generally go out in the evening if we can to get our exercise in terms of um, other issues, the, the, the police in Montreal, I have, I, I can say, with confidence are a complete menace. Um, you know, a week into the lockdown, I saw like a group of like 12 of them or something in like a very enclosed space, all like milling about in close proximity or waiting around for something. And then some of them went up to some, uh, a son of a friend of mine and, and, um, in a park and gave them a ticket. Um, and, and he, the, the son was there with a friend who has asthma, um, and repeatedly asked the police officers to keep their distance. And one of the police officers thought it was a funny joke to, to come up and like breathe on one of them, like in a very, and he actually got on video where the police officers, like you can hear the visible, you can hear the like audible, like <sighs> of the police officer. And then he like smiles and, and, uh, and looks at him. So, you know, which is, you know, in, the, in, I think at least according to Cuba and the U S like a, literally an act of terrorism, but, uh, but you know, it's the police in Montreal. So par for the course. Um, you know, I think, I think there's a huge amount of like invisible effects. Um, you know, there have been like every neighborhood here seems to have a, a mutual aid group, which, you know, where people are sort of helping each other out and stuff. And so there's a lot of, a lot of people in pretty, you can kind of, it gives you a bit of a window on, on the like level of isolation and difficulty people are feeling. 
but it, but it's hard, you know, you have to go looking for that, um, to, in order to see it, unless you're experiencing it yourself. Um, I'm, I'm personally at home with a three month old, which, you know, I'm very grateful that I'm not, not, uh, that we don't have a toddler, for example, which I think would be much more, uh, much more difficult, but, but in a lot of ways, our, our life hasn't really changed except for the fact that we're just feeling the overall stress of the crisis and we, you know, can't have visitors obviously to, to help out with anything. Okay. So the other thing I wanted to ask you guys about prior to getting into the rent strike stuff was, uh, what, what is courage? So maybe you can start off with that, Drew, because you helped to co-found the organization. Sure. So Courage is an organization that basically tries to, I mean, you can look at it from a bunch of different perspectives, but the the one I like to look at is it's just groups all together, all the people who do a lot of work during elections, you know, and, and are generally on the left. And, you know, and, and volunteer because they generally want better electoral outcomes, uh, but don't see themselves represented really um, in any of the political parties. Um, and certainly not in the NDP, which is, I think, where most people put their energies uh, who are on the left. So in, in one sense, it's sort of a, a, a kind of a union of the of campaign volunteers uh, in some sense. Of of just saying, okay, here's here's a, a democratic space where we can get together, take positions, and coordinate our efforts. Um, it's a democratic, member-based organization that, um, so far, mostly most of what we do is is take positions on on different issues, uh, and try to push the NDP to the left on on specific issues. Uh, foreign policy has been has taken a particular place, but I think also a Green New Deal and trying to to come up with some transformative populist economic policy um, that can actually redistribute wealth while um, giving us a, a shot at, at, um, at saving the planet um, from imminent disaster. Um, I think that's, that's pretty much what we've been working on. Um, so what that looks like is uh, we had a pretty big mobilization at the, at the last NDP convention a couple of years ago. Where we we pushed several several resolutions, uh, trying to get the NDP to um, to take a better position on Palestine. Uh, we successfully got them to take a position. Uh, the, so the party officially has a position in favor of free education. Uh, the party unfortunately just mostly ignored that um, and came out just made up whatever policy they wanted to have. Uh, we also got a, uh, some some changes to the way uh, resolutions are prayer so that we can get the resolutions on the floor um, that it's also unclear whether they're going to implement. Uh, and then we also had uh, a few other resolutions. Um, and so, you know, since then, we, mo- we mostly sort of try to run little pressure campaigns and, and, uh, and we've started locals uh, in several uh, cities. So we've got local groups uh, organizing in Vancouver, Toronto, and uh, Montreal. And oh yeah, in Ottawa. And, uh, you know, one, one of our people got elected to kind of one of the positions in, I think one of the vice president positions in BC, in the BC NDP. Um, there's, there was definitely mobilization around the Ontario NDP convention, uh, recently. And so, yeah, so, so overall it's, it's kind of an NDP facing group, but I think our intention has always been to sort of bridge the gap between electoral politics and movement politics. Um, and my my personal view on it is that you know electoral politics are always going to reflect the kind of power that we build 
at the grassroots. Um, they're never going to be the thing that, that kind of creates power for us. But at the same time, it can be a very useful tool in creating power at the grassroots. And I think we've seen with Bernie Sanders, with AOC, like the level of popularization of radical ideas, or at least like significantly social democratic ideas that are way to the left of, of the status quo. Um, we've seen how just a few people having a, you know, a big, a big platform can amplify those ideas in the media uh, and and po- and popularize those ideas like way beyond where the left has traditionally been able to reach. Um, so I think just for me personally, as a Courage member, that's the value of this project is to try to to leverage the access that electoral politics has to um, to the media and to just the public in general uh, in order to spread those radical ideas or or left of center ideas, depending on how you want to look at it. Uh, so Sam, you're a member of Courage, and and Drew tells us that this is a member-driven organization, and I'm really wondering whether you can confirm that or whether the directives come straight from Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, no, I, and and if yeah, and also I, I I guess I didn't mention to, but I guess I'm also one of the co-founders of Courage. I was there from the beginning out kind of started in 2017 i think was when it started out of like the to push the folks in the leadership race to the left i think that's sort of how courage courage began and i remember we had our launch party at the in montreal uh, the first leadership debate at um but uh yeah no it's definitely a membership driven organization and try to be as democratic as possible you know much different to the ndp uh that can be I think there's lots of folks who are in courage who are frustrated with the demo- the so-called democratic structures of the NEP um, that we try to make it as democratic and inclusive at times as possible. Uh, although you know there have been issues uh, in courage that we've sometimes in terms of inclusivity and what inclusivity rather and whatnot. But yeah, I know, and I think Drew you know summed it up very well. I think the the main point about courage is to bridge that gap between electoral politics and movement-based politics that we see not existing with within the NEP or, or, or that, you know, is a very small element to the NEP, you know, even when it comes to labor, uh, you know, the NEP sort of doesn't even have a big a stake as they used to, you know, so, so that's sort of courage. Yes. Acts as a pressure group, but also a home for folks who feel disenfranchised, uh, from the party through years of activism, you know, like myself within the party, especially when it comes to Palestine, uh, solidarity, movement, uh, the Municipalitalis and Solidarity Movement uh, has been pushed aside so many times by the party, you know, so it's it's nice to have that sort of home that group people and also to the point of um, there are now more local courage groups or at least they have more uh, visibility, especially in Ottawa. I mean, you know, Ottawa is a liberal town with lots of liberal politicians and at the municipal level, federal, provincial, provincial, every level and um, we had our first meeting, uh, and I don't remember when it was, but when people could still group together and go outside, I don't remember how long ago that was, seems like ages ago, <laughs> but, um, you know, there were like 40 or 50 people there. And I think people often think of Ottawa as this, and I'm from Montreal, so I obviously thought the same thing that Ottawa is this boring, uh, town with no political activity, but it's not, you know, it's not true. And people are, are mad. Um, and what's interesting about at least encourage Ottawa. I don't, I, I can't speak to other chapters, but 
yes, it's it's a lot of it is based on the NEP and then people who have been involved in the NEP, but there's a lot of people who I hadn't seen before that were there that are interested in uh, issues at every level of government, especially more locally, um, you know, do with public free public transit, you know, a lot, a lot of municipal issues, more dem- democracy at the municipal level and provincial. Like, so it's, it's good to see. I think the local building up those local courage chapters have been really important for courage. And, and there's definitely been a lot of activism on the local level in Ottawa. So there is sort of, I think we're starting to see that sort of movement, from courage like outside of just like that scope and that universe of the NEP, which is nice. It's still important, but obviously you want to want to bridge out a bit more. So that's been nice to see. So I think courage is steadily growing, especially in in, in this current sort of context that we're in where folks are I think we're living in quite interesting times for the left where sort of ripe for sort of I don't want to say like revolutionary times, but but you know, people are mad and there's similar context, you know, lots of people unemployed, including myself. And people can't pay for things uh, like rent, which we'll talk about soon. Um, and I, you know, I think there's a space there for a populist left group to sort of come in and, and be that beacon of hope for people. So let's talk. Let's move um, to the rent strike stuff. So Sam, you've been sort of on the ground trying to do some of the organizing of a rent strike in Ottawa. Or I, I think I guess you'll tell us because I don't actually know what the details of this are, whether it's a citywide thing or it's whether it's particular buildings. So what's what's going on? Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's also big, big movements for rent strike in Canada and um, across Ontario. So like in Toronto, Toronto is really the biggest sort of you know, movement going on there where they've organized like whole buildings and stuff like that. But there's also Guelph and Hamilton and London. Um, so it's really, uh, it's spreading across the, the province, obviously, like, and around the world too in the U.S. and, and in, in uh, Montreal, et cetera. Gatineau too, and it's interesting, you know, we, we sort of link together in terms of, you know, helping together with Ottawa and Gatineau because Gatineau is right across the river here, though the laws are obviously different because they're different provinces. Um, but yeah, I mean, we started a couple of weeks ago and, and it's interesting how, how much it's grown since then. I mean, we're now uh, in our group of over you know, like almost 1300 people in our group on Facebook. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, it, it's been difficult. It's, it's kind of hard to know, uh, the full number of people who are withholding their rent or keeping their rent as the movement's called the keep your rent movement, because, you know, we can't actually be on the ground. Um, so it's really interesting time to be organizing or a difficult time, um, where the most, how we've relied on, um, organizing is, you know, some of us have gone out and have tried to safely put up posters at least. So we've put posters up all around the city and it is a citywide, very much a citywide movement. It's obviously harder. To, there are some areas where people rent more. So those areas like center town, which is the downtown area are more active than areas like Canada, which is more suburban, but there's still people involved down there, but it's, you know, so it's, it's, it was kind of hard to know, but I know there was um, an article that came out recently that said more, uh, almost a third of all Canadians kept their rent in uh, the previous month. So that's, that's a big number to build on, you know, and we've sort of been, uh, you know, as I said, so it's difficult to organize. So we've been putting up posters as one method and also, um, you know, making uh, people have filled out forms to see where they are in the city and, and they connect with folks by email or by phone. We've been making phone calls as well, you know, and I think there's a, now we have a structure in place and same thing in Toronto and people are looking forward toward uh, May 1st. And I think there's going to be an even bigger movement on May 1st um, to to withhold our rent, you know, and I think 
Uh, we've seen like the the fear from landlords across the city who have sort of are trying to make uh, you know deals or 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 sort of amends with 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 their tenants, um, not to the point of with of like waiving rent, but you know making like little deals here here and there with them. Uh, it's good to see, and you know we've gotten some good media coverage as well. Um, being in local paper papers here on on CTV Ottawa, we had an op-ed in the Citizen. Um, I think across Ontario, because of the the developer developers have a lot of not that they don't have a lot of power in, in other cities uh, in in Quebec, but here uh, you know the housing regulations have been so laxed that developers have sort of gotten to whatever they want. Especially, and we're seeing in Toronto, prices are so expensive, and landlords are using uh, before. And last thing I'll say, landlords have been using the sort of emergency benefit when it comes is comes in as an excuse to be like, well, you got your emergency benefit. So you should pay when that comes in. And for a lot of people, especially in Toronto, right, where rents are crazy expensive, $2,000 is not going to be enough to, to live, right? If you, if you pay your rent and use it to buy groceries, foods, et cetera, you know, this, this emergency response benefit has sort of, in essence, become a sort of bailout for landlords in, in, in a, to a certain extent, because a lot of people don't actually get to keep all this money because a lot of it is going towards rent. What are your thoughts on this, Drew? Why don't you guys want to have people pay their rent? I mean, people sign the contract. <laughs> so, so in terms of um, in terms of the rent strike, I mean, th- we're in a really interesting situation because, on the one hand, organizing a rent strike is something that requires just a huge amount of of on the ground uh, support and organizing, which we clearly don't have. Um, the, the housing activism infrastructure is is i'd say on the on the low end of what it should be in in canada and obviously the the covid crisis makes it much more difficult to actually talk to people you know you can't knock on doors you can't uh, talk to people in the streets you can put up posters and that's about it you can make phone calls obviously you can organize social media but but obviously those are not the ingredients for a successful rent strike but on the other hand what we have is a de facto rent strike because as of may 1st an estimated 1.5 million people won't be able to afford their rent and we'll have to either go into debt or just not pay it. Um, so there's going to be some, certainly some thousands of people, probably tens or hundreds of thousands of people who are just not going to be able to pay their rent uh, on May 1st. Either that or they'll be paying rent and not, you know, eating like the, the dregs of their pantry if they have any. So there's a pretty desperate situation. Um, so so what we're facing is a, is a de facto rent strike you know, where it's not organized, it's just willy-nilly and based on desperation. So so between those two things, I think it's really important to be able to to sort of see what the balance of forces is, um, to to be able to to kind of see each other and to and to see where things are at. And so that's why we created cancelrent.ca is really to like um, you know, for a couple of different reasons. One is like a million people, I think at this point, have signed a petition saying you know, rent should be frozen, mortgages should be frozen for the entire crisis. So that's a pot, clearly a popular demand. So, you know, one thirtieth of the entire country has signed a petition, um, you know, asking for that. What does that mean? What does that mean to for rents and and uh, mortgages to be frozen? My, my sense is it just means that they won't be paid. But obviously, we need to be clear about the interpretation because I think as you're as you're catching on to a lot of a lot of um, you know, the banks uh, certainly 
And, uh, and even the NDP, I think, are, are creating this wiggle room where it's like, oh, frozen means they'll be paid later, which, of course, is <laughs> totally untenable. So I think the people who are signing those petitions clearly have that understanding that it means that, you know, we're just not going to pay rent during this time. We're not going to pay mortgages during this time and we'll resume uh, paying rent and mortgages after the crisis is over. You know, which which I think means that the banks would have to, you know, the banks and different other people sort of financing these properties are are going to have to pay their fair share, or or I think justly pay disproportionately. I mean, the banks in in Canada are among the most profitable enterprises that exist. Uh, they they have record profits every year. They pay their executives billions in bonuses alone. Um, they have tens of billions of profits every quarter. They have the money to like forego interest payments for a few for for a few months. They they can definitely do that, but they don't want to, and they have a lot of political power, which is why which is why the government, uh, as Sam pointed out, is effectively bailing out landlords. Uh, which really is what that means is that they're bailing out banks um, who are who the landlords are paying who uh, who are who who are the actual owners of those buildings the landlords are just the sort of middlemen in in a lot of cases uh, unless they paid off the mortgage in which case they're just making money hand over fist and and in which case they can definitely afford to forego rent for a few months during an uh you know in a, a global crisis so yeah um cancel rent.ca is really meant to to sort of to take the risk out of committing to a rent strike you can say you can go on the website and you can say like Okay, I'll I'll withhold my rent if you know a thousand other people in my city uh, do it, or I'll withhold my rent if twenty thousand other people just decide to withhold their rent. So you can set your threshold, um, and and I think this this gives us a kind of a you know a, a sense. I don't think it gives us a real overview of how many people are really going to withhold their rent or how many people can't afford rent, or, and so on. Obviously, only a fraction of a fraction of people in Canada have seen this website. But it it creates at least there's a mechanism where co- collective momentum could be built. Uh, I mean, I think we saw with the student strikes in Quebec, uh, a lot of this is is really just building your confidence as a movement. Um, a lot, you know, there it, it usually in 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 the student strikes in Quebec, I'll often you start with like a one day uh, student strike where everyone would 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 just leave classes for one day, and then a bunch of other you know stageups or universities. Or you know, faculties within the would vote to do the same thing, and then once you've kind of built up your confidence by by organizing one of those, and and you and you have that core of support and the and the kind of political battle lines have been established, then you can go on to be like, okay, we're going to do a week, uh, or you can set conditions. You can say like, okay, we're going to be on an unlimited general strike as long as you know, a hundred thousand other students are also on strike, and so you create these kind of conditional strike mandates um which is how in 2012 they got such a massive massive student movement where where it basically disrupted the entire province uh, and forced the government to roll back its um its kind of neoliberal attack on students um so back to rent strike i mean i think i think that's that's what you know if if we're going to get the, the government to mandate a a freeze on on mortgage payments and on rent payments uh, as opposed to the kind of voluntary nonsense that the banks put in to basically make themselves even more money, um, then we're going to have to we're going to have to find a way to build momentum. And so, you know, cancelrent.ca is sort of an ex- experiment in building that in in creating a tool that would allow us to build that momentum. Obviously, it's just one 
part of the ecosystem. But uh, but that was the idea. Um, one element of this that's perhaps conflictual is that if you are advocating on behalf of people who pay rent, well, there are people who rent from people who have a mortgage on their home, right? Like if if someone is renting out their basement unit or something, and you know relies on that that rent they get to help pay for the mortgage, then telling people that they shouldn't pay their rent is something that that person who has to pay the mortgage isn't going to find to be a, a you know a nice thing. So how do you sort of try to bridge that conflict? I mean, I, I, just to take a crack at that, I, I think one of the challenges here is definitely that renters are a minority in Canada. Um, so, so clearly, we're not going to be able to win with a coalition just renters. So while I understand a lot of the hostility towards small-time landlords, at the same time, I think what we need to do is start to find a way to turn everybody to, you know, change the direction. I mean, basically what landlords are doing is collecting money on behalf of the banks or what a small time landlord who's renting out their basement, for example, uh, is doing is collecting money on behalf of the banks. And I think what a rent strike to be successful in this country, unfortunately has to do is turn a significant number of those landlords, you know, to not be battling with their tenants over whether they're going to pay rent, but, but joining a collective battle against the banks to say, look, we're not paying, we're not paying mortgages during this period. And I think, I think that that's, I mean, I think that that's, that's the kind of reality writ large is that, you know, in, in the U S you know, just with the kind of Bernie Sanders stuff, what we saw was the middle class, you know, who, who lined the progressive middle class who lined up behind Elizabeth Warren effectively through the race to Joe Biden because they were because they weren't able to consolidate the kind of the, the alliance between the progressive middle class and the working class uh, and youth um, that would have put Bernie in he would have won like five extra states or something uh, if you, you just 40 percent of those people the, the Warren supporters had voted for Bernie but because Warren stayed in the race you end up uh, with the youth the youth vote and the working class vote isolated. And I think you have a similar situation in Canada where, you know, if, if renters, if, if every single renter was part of a political coalition, it wouldn't be enough. But if renters are able to create alliances with, with people who have mortgages and are struggling or people who are these kind of small time landlords, ultimately we're going like that. That is a winning coalition. And I I'm, I'm fully aware that that's not a, popular popular position but i think it's i think it's the ultimately the winning position politically in a country like canada where you do have a significant amount of people invested in their in property yeah no i just to add to that i mean what we've sort of been saying in our rhetoric is you know uh, a lot of landlords will when they write to tenants about uh, negotiating about to pay rent or not landlords will often be and people will often be like oh well Landlords and tenants should work together to the, during this crisis to be able to make sporadic payments or this and that. And then, we're, you know, we've sort of been like, well, if you really want to work together with us, with tenants, uh, you'll demand a rent freeze and a mortgage freeze from the government, just like we are, because, you know, that's that's going to help you as much as it'll help us. Um, and there's been a, a large focus on the media here in Ottawa and um, I assume elsewhere in, in the world uh, and in Canada on the struggles that landlords face, you know, to pay their mortgages 
but but a very small uh, focus on well, you know, tenants have bills too. Uh, tenants, you know, and I think the stake the stake of risk is a lot different when it, you're talking about tenants versus landlords. Tenants, you know, it's between for a lot of them, it's between the street and that place or, or a precarious housing situation, especially which would be difficult in this uh, crisis. And for landlords, a lot of them still have their investment property um, that they can leverage against the market and that they can can still use. And the other point that I want to make, too, is about, uh, you know, the small time landlord, about the claim about, you know, a lot of the landlords owning par- having partial ownership with tenants of their of uh, their properties, which actually isn't the case. The majority of landlords in Canada own multiple properties. Um, you know, your average landlord is not, it's a, it's a myth, right? That they're, the average landlord is this little old widow, this little old lady who, who rents out part of their house to, to a tenant. That's not the average landlord. And that's the sort of myth that's been peddled by, by the media, corporate media and, and others. Um, but it's not the case. And that's not the belittle, uh, Drew's point. Cause I think Drew also obviously makes a very good point, which, which I, you know, which, which I agree with that you know if we want to get fo- folks on board we have to get everybody asking for this and to the point too about about um what a mortgage freeze means and what a what a rent freeze means i think a lot the government uh and, and a lot of the media and, and everyone in the in the sort of like popular narrative have, have been very successful at framing a mortgage freeze or a rent freeze as being uh a, a sort of like deferring payment as opposed to um forgiving payment you know and i think that's you know framing it as a sort of rent forgiveness I know as a rent freeze, because I think th- this rent freeze, people would be like, well, you're still going to pay, right? You still have to pay later. And I think for a lot of people, you know, who are in this movement, who are deciding not to pay the rent, you know, they can't pay now. So what makes you think they're going to be able to pay later? You know, if anything, it's going to be much worse with the interest payments, with mortgage uh, and rent payments building up. Uh, so it's very unreasonable for, for, for people to, to be like, well, you should pay later. It's like, no, a lot of these people are not going to be able to pay later. Um, and, and as Drew pointed out too, you know, it, this movement is not a movement out of out of want or out of desire. It's not a movement of being like, well, I'm not going to pay my rent because I don't have to because there's a rent eviction freeze, etc. It's a movement out out of desperation. It's a movement out of uh, people who who needed this movement to survive. And for a lot of people, you know, they'll be okay for now. Maybe they can pay rent this month. Maybe they could pay rent in May. But this crisis, who knows how long this crisis could, crisis could last? And people are some people are keeping the rent even though they can still pay because they might not have money for their medication and whatnot or food uh, later on in this crisis. <clears throat> so you know, and and a final point on the the point about the collectivity is important too because especially within this point in in rent strikes historically traditionally uh, you know landlords will try to um, talk to people on a case by case basis. And that's not effective. You have to have a collectivity of people. You have to respond to people or to landlords or to your property manager or whatever as a uh, multitude of tenants. Because if, you know, if you don't have, if you're just one-on-one, you don't have much leverage, you don't have much power. You know, there's more of us than there are of them. And if tenants across the country and province group together, then yes, we can have power, we can have leverage. Um, Okay, so to follow up on just a couple of the things that you guys have said. So on the one hand, you've you've pointed out that the housing organizing infrastructure isn't where it needs to be. And I guess I would want to ask, where does it need to be and how can the work that is being done now, how, how would that contribute to building that kind of infrastructure? And I also want to sort of ask about or press the point about and and you guys have sort of made this point that this 
where people aren't necessarily uh, you know refusing to pay rent because they're politicized all of a sudden and say that you know rent payments are trash we should have public housing where rent is you know relatively cheap and and the state provides a large housing stock and and therefore you don't have to get into this situation where the banks own everything and everything you earn ultimately goes to the landlord who then pays the bank the current situation it seems to me is you know the based on what you're saying there is a kind of moral economy of desperation right people are out of desperation rather than out of uh, radicalization or politicization uh coming to to the position that well maybe i just i'll try not to pay my rent or I, i'm just forced not to pay my rent this month and maybe next month um and i guess is there a way to to push that towards any kind of politicization or or is that difficult to do in a at a moment of crisis do you have to just do that before shit hits the fan i mean i think the crisis is a lot of the times exactly what what radicalizes people i think we you know this pandemic has laid bare the inequalities that exist in an economic system that was that has been designed to exploit us for decades if not centuries and whatnot. But, you know, I, I think what's interesting about this crisis, and it's not not only when it comes to tenants, but also to workers. I mean, anecdotally, I've been speaking to friends who work at a cafe and whatnot, and other bosses at the beginning were forcing them to go to work. And eventually they grouped together and said, no, we we are not coming to work because it's not safe. And the, the, their bosses had nothing else to do but to say, okay, you don't have to come to work. So I think What's interesting in terms of talking about radicalizing people, I think people are starting to, yes, it's a movement out of desperation, but I think people are starting to realize the sort of power that they have when they come together collectively. And that when when you come together um, as tenants, as workers, um, there's a lot of us, more of us than there are of them. And if we group together and fight for what we think is right, then we can actually make some movement and we can actually, um, you know, there. I think people are starting to realize that that power dynamic that we think exists between boss and worker, between tenant and landlord, or or the banks and the land tenants, um, is sort of a a superficial power dynamic that can be overcome if if folks come together. It might take a lot to uh to to get that idea into people's heads, um, but I think people are starting to realize that, and I think this crisis is 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 making that visible. But is everything going to go back to normal after this? You know, I don't know, um, because I don't really have faith in people like Justin Trudeau to continue these huge changes to the, to the state. Cause you know, we're seeing the mo- the biggest investments in the welfare state that we've seen since, you know, a decade since world uh, post world war two. And, and will, will that, will that stay? I don't know. Will will we see a universal basic income after this? Who knows? But I, you know, I think there's a certain extent to be like, there's no going back from, from sort of what we've, what we've been doing because the government has even said, right. With the $2,000, benefit that $2,000 is the base you need to live, but people get less on EI than they have been, than they get out of this benefit, or people get less than Ontario Works or, or, or other social programs in Quebec, um, Action, I think it's called, but you know, so, so you're giving people $700 a month or $500 a month, but people need more to survive. So I, I think there's, there is a sort of conscien- consciousness that has been risen as a result of this crisis, I think, and that might serve to radicalize people or or not. Um, but I do think that it has made people more aware, at least, of the inequalities that, 
that are that are very uh, visible to some. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that there's a lot of lived experience that can be leveraged into into a, like a longer range analysis. I think I think a lot of people, you know, aren't thinking about social housing policy, you know, as a matter of their day to day life. But I think that it's incumbent on groups like Courage or the different rent strike groups to, you know, one, once we get, once we've kind of done that initial groundwork of being support for kind of the immediate demands to bridge that into like, okay, let's actually talk about commodified housing and how that's fundamentally wrong. Uh, and I think you're, I think the audiences that get built up and the, and the kind of activist base that gets built up by the kind of COVID crisis in terms of rent, you know, there's a huge potential there to bridge that into a larger ideological understanding of, you know, what what kind of racket banks have been running for the last four or five decades in terms of profiting from from people's need for housing um, and how and and the kind of devastating effects that has had, um, you know, in terms of dismantling communities, in terms of you know, the, the level of homelessness that exists, um, the level of kind of financial precarity and desperation that exists among like millions of households in this country. Uh, I think all that can be, can be surfaced now and, and we can, we can build a, a pretty strong foundation to have a really different kind of conversation and different kind of different, uh, a new level of organizing around housing issues. Um, you know, even when the crisis has passed. I just want to add one more thing, sorry, um, just to that point about uh, the infrastructure not being there, which I think is true that, you know, especially in Ottawa, there are groups that exist to, you know, fight for low to middle income tenants like ACORN um, in, in Ottawa and, and, and in other cities in Ontario. But I think another good opportunity for this, you know, the, it will extend past this and, and it's sort of building the infrastructure for the creation of tenants unions and tenant associations across the city that didn't exist before in Ottawa. Uh, there isn't a good infrastructure of tenant unions, and I think that can be one of the things that will come out of this. That you know, we'll, yes, we will try to get the rent strike, but also you know, tenants will form hopefully form associations and unions, and the structures starting to exist now because of this uh, rent strike and whatnot um, that will hopefully carry uh, carry forward. So, um, for someone listening to this who is interested in this initiative what can they do you know i mean i think what we've tried to do on uh, cancelrent.ca is create a list of resources and facebook groups and mailing lists and everything else that people can join um and you know there's lots of things to read there to find out more uh under the resources section and and there's a you know there's a french section of the website as well so i would say you know go poke around and find the find connect to the organizers that are in your in your city I think that's first and foremost, but, uh, but obviously, um, you know, courage plans to be working on housing issues, you know, for the foreseeable, um, we're going to come out with a housing statement soon that kind of lays out our vision for, for how, for, you know, what needs to happen in the housing sector in Canada. And so you're welcome to join us as well, but, um, I'm sure Sam will have more from an Ottawa perspective. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, talk to your neighbors, uh, any way you can. Um, I think that's obviously a first step and, you know, just contact anyone in your building. If you have their email, if you have their phone number and just bring up uh, the idea of a rent strike. I mean, that's how a lot of things start and that's how things started in Ottawa as well. You know, contact your local organizers as, as you said, or look up something in your city. And if that doesn't exist, 
then start to start a Facebook group if you feel strongly about it, uh, which you should. Um, yeah, I know, and I I think the other idea that that has come out of this, especially keeping your rent, is that you know a lot of landlords will say to people, well, you know, this is my business, I need the money, and I think that's exactly the problem, right? That housing is seen as as a business or as a luxury when it's actually a necessity that people need to survive, especially in this crisis where if you go outside, you could potentially be exposing yourself to a terrible virus. So, you know, I think that's become very evident that that housing is a right, should be a right, and, a, and it's a necessity. Thanks for tuning in to Oats for Breakfast. Remember to check out cancelrent.ca if you're looking for resources and information about rent strike organizing. Also remember that you can go to patreon.com forward slash oats for breakfast and become a supporter of the podcast. This is your host, Omer, signing out.